before I begin this week's episode, I must amend my discussion of last week. In episode 9, I proposed that Kentikaus was daughter of Menkaure and the wife of Shepseskaf, who took power through marriage to the princess and fathered a new line of rulers. This, I now believe, is not wholly accurate. In researching Shepseskaf and his successor Userkaf, I came across some new scholarship that has fundamentally altered my perception. This scholar, Vivian G. Callender of the University of Sydney, has advanced a very well-developed and convincing theory that upends much of the scholarship I had originally read on this topic. Simply stated, we must now amend our argument thus. Kentikaus was in fact not the daughter of Menkaure, but rather his sister, and daughter instead of Kafre, the second of the Giza pyramid builders. Shepseskaf and Userkaf were her sons, both of whom came to the throne and earned for their mother the august title of Mut Nesutbiti Nesutbiti, or Mother of Two Kings of Upper and Lower Egypt. The royal mother wielded extensive power during her son's reign, and was sufficiently authoritative for a representation of her to bear the royal insignia and crowns. Her title, Daughter of the God, refers to Kafre rather than Menkaure, and the absence of any title referring to her as a royal wife makes much more sense when we allow for Shepseskaf to be her son rather than husband. This does not fundamentally alter our understanding of Egyptian women in the period, simply our understanding of one woman's rise to power. Kentikau's authority was still exceptional, and her presiding over the reign of two kings is testament to her impact on this period of transition between dynasties. So there you have it, my first amendment to the series. I won't edit the previous episode because I believe in owning my mistakes, and this probably will not be the last time I have to do so. But we'll see. Now let's get into episode 10, A Temple to the Sun. Five generations of Sneferu's family line had sat on the throne in succession by the time the fourth dynasty ended. From Huni of the third, through Sneferu, Khufu, the brothers Jedefre and Kafre, and finally into the keeping of Menkaure, the throne of Egypt's two lands had been passed down in an unbroken line of stable inheritance which lasted more than 100 years. The land of Egypt was peaceful, prosperous, and unsullied by dynastic divisions or breaks in the continuity of rule. Abroad, the name of the king was known in Nubia, southern Palestine, and Libya, thanks to the vigorous campaigning in these regions. While the outside lands were never conquered or assimilated into any kind of Egyptian empire, the campaigns of the fourth dynasty took resources, plunder, and captives from these lands and brought them back to the Nile Valley where they enriched and enhanced the prestige and wealth of Egypt's monarchs. These accomplishments, however, were rather overshadowed by their domestic works. Beginning with Sneferu, 
the fourth dynasty rulers had commissioned ever larger and more elaborate funerary monuments, culminating in the Great Pyramid of Khufu, a monument so large that today it has become synonymous with Egypt itself. Together with his son Khafre, Khufu left a legacy in stone at Giza that would never be matched in sheer size by any ruler. Kings of Egypt forevermore would look up at the Giza pyramids and lament their inability to outdo these legendary rulers. Menkaure's pyramid was a rather small monument, and ended the dynasty's accomplishments with a murmur rather than a bang. Nevertheless, the fourth dynasty was the high watermark of Egyptian civilization until this point, and though it would be not be the last, it was ever considered a golden age that could not quite be attained, though later rulers would certainly try. Menkaure's death without a son left the throne vacant for the first time in a century. If the issue were not addressed immediately, civil strife could erupt, and, more importantly, no ruler existed to commune with the divine world, and ensure the continued stability and safety of Egypt. If the reign of chaos were to be averted, a solution had to be found post-haste. Enter Kentikaus the princess who took upon herself the responsibility for perpetuating the royal line, and ensuring the stability of the monarchy which had endured for close to five hundred years. Ever since the kings of Neken had emerged from Upper Egypt to claim the Nile Valley and Delta for their own, the succession had endured with surprisingly few known interruptions. While civil conflict in the reign of Kasa Kemwe had ended the Second Dynasty, and perpetuated a myth of feuding royal dynasties, the lineage of kings remained essentially stable. Now, the line was in trouble, and it was Kenti Kaus who held the keys to power. Her successful placement of Shepseskaf, her son, upon the throne, defused the situation, and allowed for a breathing space of some twelve years, in which time it was possible for a young prince to be born and raised to a state capable of ruling effectively on his own merits. We will meet him at the end of the episode. Now it is apparent from the manner in which Shepseskaf and Usarkaf wielded their power, specifically in the matter of their monuments, that there was an ideological and psychological shift underway in royal policy. Shepseskaf is often thought to have been a priest of Heliopolis, where the sun cult of the god Atum-Ra flourished, and his entrance onto the royal stage would visibly shift the foundations on which the royal household perpetuated itself in an ideological sense. The fifth dynasty is a dynasty of solar kings, whose reverence and veneration of Ra became a prominent element both of their theological outlook and the monuments which they erected for the service of their car. Dividing the necropolis between their own pyramid and a temple dedicated specifically to the worship of the sun god, renders the fifth dynasty unique among Egyptian dynasties for such a dedicated and specific focus on this deity, one that would not be paralleled again apart from an anomalous episode in the 18th dynasty. Shepseskaf's reign was not long, a mere five years, in which time the king established for himself a small mastaba tomb at southern Saqqara. The mastaba of Shepseskaf is 100 metres by 72 metres, and is relatively large for a tomb of its type, but compared with the achievements of his predecessor, Shepseskaf's monument is minor at best. It is similar in structure and layout with the tomb of Kentikaus, which fits with the notion of her as a mother rather than wife. 
the tomb of Shepseskaf is at Saqqara, and were the two rulers married, we would expect them to be buried in close proximity to each other. Now, with our new understanding, we can see that the tomb of Kentikaus was erected near to that of her brother Menkaure, with whom it was valuable to associate herself explicitly as a matter of maintaining legitimacy. For Shepseskaf's reign, very little is known, and he is one of the rulers whom we have to rather skip over, because there's just nothing else to say with the current evidence. His brother, Userkaf, came to the throne somewhere in his late teenage years. The royal statuary shows a fresh-faced youth, rather than the youthful but mature faces of other kings. His contribution to the archaeological record was far greater than that of his brother. He left a small but completed pyramid at Saqqara, and a new type of monument a kilometre so north at a site known as Abu Sir. We'll discuss the pyramid first. The pyramid of Usarkaf is relatively small by the standards of the 4th dynasty, about on par with that of Menkaure at Giza. It is constructed of limestone, and after losing much of its casing to stone robbers during the Roman and medieval periods, has become a rather crumbled shadow of its former self. It is placed just northeast of the Steppe Pyramid, within the boundaries of a large trench which surrounded the older monument. In other words, the tomb lay within the sacred space of the third dynasty ruler Netjeriket Joza's tomb, and was therefore connected with it in a semi-magical way. Beyond this, the connection had a more simple application. Seen from the Nile Valley, and the capital city at Memphis, which is due east, the Steppe Pyramid was one of the most visible monuments on the western skyline. Placed next to it, Userkaf's tomb was associated very clearly with the earlier monument, and made the necropolis into a new Giza, with multiple pyramids rising like mountains from the desert edge. Why Userkaf did this is not entirely clear, but I believe it was a matter connected to the possibly difficult circumstances by which the king came to the throne. Given his relative youth, and his indirect lineage from Menkaure, Usukaf may not have had the most legitimate claim to the throne as he would have liked. Any other royal child had a claim probably equal to his, and shoring up his position as both ruler and continuation of a dynasty was required. By building his tomb close to that of an illustrious and legendary predecessor, Usarkaf connected himself with the earliest of Egypt's great dynasties and rulers. He also connected himself strongly with the cult of Hathor, donating many acres of land to a temple of Hathor in Middle Egypt, and making a priest named Nika Ankh the head of the temple. All of the man's children who became priests would, in turn, benefit from the economic largesse the king had shown towards this cult. This was fairly similar to the benefactions given by Kafre to an official, but with a more priestly emphasis. Instead of giving the product of lands and domains to the official, he gave priestly titles and connections. In time, many officers and titles would become hereditary, and the more that this occurred, the more that certain families gained power and influence, and challenged the supremacy of the royal family. But this will come later. Userkaf also donated to the cult of Rei, granting extensive land holdings to the temples of this god. His devotion to Rei was more than mere lip service or bribery. Given his youth and the dominance of his mother, it is often suspected that the priesthood of Rei 
were among Usarkaf's most useful supporters, and that their continued connection was one of the major sources of power and stability for the king's rule. As such, his next move was probably not much of a surprise, but it is somewhat revolutionary for the time. After establishing his pyramid at Saqqara, he ordered the construction of a temple about one kilometre north at a place called Abu Sir. This temple sat on the edge of an escarpment, with a causeway and valley temple like those built for the pyramids. It was called Neken Rei, or Rei's Neken, a combination of the great solar god and the ancestral birthplace of Egyptian kingship. Usukaf was joining the past with the future. His pyramid at Saqqara connected with the third dynasty monument of Netjadikat Djoser, and his temple at Abusir linked the most supreme of the ancient deities with the birthplace of the monarchy, while simultaneously pushing forward the forms by which a god could be worshipped. Usarkaf was all about the traditional ideas, and promoting connections with the royal ancestry. Yet another reason why we suspect he was not entirely stable on his throne, and may have felt a need to project his authority as visibly as possible. It is nevertheless interesting that he established this temple called Neken Rei. The temple is one of the first in a line of similar monuments built by the 5th dynasty kings, which we know today as the Sun Temples. They appear only in this dynasty, and only in this geographical area of Abu Sir. So what are they? The Sun Temples were temples built around an open courtyard, in which may have been placed large obelisks. An obelisk, for those of my listeners unfamiliar with the term, is a tall, square-shaped structure which peaks at the top in a pyramid shape. The idea, in general, is for the shape to replicate the beams of the sun. The Washington Monument is based off the obelisk shape, and many cities such as London, Paris, Rome, and Istanbul have Egyptian obelisks in public spaces, from the days when empire builders like the Romans, French, and British took obelisks from Egypt to their home. The obelisks you see today are a lot thinner than the Sun Temple ones seem to have been, and I can only assume that the skill of making these took some time to reach its perfection. The Sun Temple Nekenre was discovered in the early 20th century by Ludwig Borschad, a German explorer responsible for many great finds and excavations, including the famous bust of Nefertiti, which he discovered at Amarna and removed to Berlin where it remains to this day. Borschardt cleared the temple, and it was published in the 1960s by German and Swiss institutes. The excavators determined that the monument was constructed in several distinct phases, including a preparatory level made of mud brick, followed by limestone and granite areas, including the obelisk. A courtyard of basalt was then added and extended, followed by the construction of an altar for offerings to be placed before the divine obelisk. The sun temples were the next logical step in the process of solar association that had begun earlier in the 4th dynasty. Khafre's temple to the Sphinx had included altars to worship both the rising and the setting sun, and the imagery of the Sphinx itself associated the king heavily with the sun in his guise as a reclining lion. The development of solar theology was also encapsulated in the pyramids themselves, where the form of the monument evoked the rays of the sun and its enduring beauty. 
The monuments were named along similar thought patterns. The Meidum Pyramid of Sneferu had been named Sneferu Endures. The Bent Pyramid, Sneferu Shines in the South. The Great Pyramid was known as the Horizon of Khufu, and Menkaure's as Divine is Menkaure, and so forth. Usarkaf took a slightly different angle, one that emphasized his piety and the plethora of temples which he patronized. His pyramid was known as Wab Sut Weserkaf, or Pure are the cult places of Usarkaf. When we connect this with his extensive donations to the cult of Re and Hathor, it is clear that the king strove very hard to maintain a close association with the great cults and used their legitimacy to bolster his own power. It paid dividends. The fifth dynasty is known today as one of the most pious of dynasties, in the sense that its rulers worked hard to maintain good relations and connections with the cults of Re and Hathor. The connections were made in more ways than simple economics and worship. Even the design of Usarkaf's pyramid showed throwbacks to earlier periods. The tomb was oriented north to south, unlike the Giza monuments which faced east. Aside from imitating the step pyramid's layout, this may also have been based on engineering requirements. Usarkaf was trying to shove a pyramid into a very confined area, and his architects did not have a lot of freedom to plan a complex as they liked. The ground near to the pyramid was unstable, and unless the mortuary temple was placed on the northern face, it would likely collapse under its own weight. Making the tomb south-facing also allowed the burial chamber, and the shaft connecting it to the outside world, to receive the light of the sun all day, all year round. The offering chapel, however, remained on the pyramid's east face, keeping the essential orientation of funerary veneration towards the setting sun. When coupled with the solar aspects of Neken Re, we see a synthesis of fourth dynasty ideals regarding solar worship with third dynasty ideals of architectural design. Usarkaf is thus a man between worlds, and you could make a case for him and his brother Shepseskaf for being placed between dynasties rather than one in each. The picture being drawn by these examples from the fourth and early fifth dynasties are of a shift in the social and ideological position of the king, and, subsequently, his representation in art and architecture, moving forward in worship, practices and ideals, but backwards in artistic and architectural development, the new rulers straddled ideologies and philosophies. Between these two worlds, the world of divine transcendence between human ruler and ray, and the world of families, material gains, and social interactions with which together constitute what we may call power, sat the early rulers of the fifth dynasty. They soon proved themselves consummate masters of the balancing act, and established a ruling lineage that was able to navigate a period of great ideological and material change within Egypt. The pyramids of this dynasty are small by earlier standards. It would take several combined 5th dynasty pyramids to match the volume of the Great Pyramid, 
and even more to match the three established in Sneferu's lifetime. Their attached temple complexes, and their counterparts in the Sun Temple, divided the flow of resources between two economic yet theological institutions. The question facing any historian of the period is what to make of this division. Did it signal a weakening of royal power in favour of theological groups, or did the royal family demonstrate an ability to skillfully weave itself into the ideologies that were developing? We have seen during the reign of Menkaure a growing tendency for the king to portray himself in the company of goddesses. We saw in the Great Sphinx of Menkaure the incorporation of solar symbols into an essentially royal monument, bringing the two concepts divine ruler and the god Ray, into a visible union. These were early attempts to bring together the two systems of thought, the one which emphasised Ray as supreme being, and the one which praised Horus incarnate, the living king. Within the sun temple of Userkaf, the king was worshipped together with the rising and setting sun. His life was bound to that of the supreme deities, and his role on earth was increasingly perceived to unite the concepts of universal rule with an earthly presence. It is worth remembering that Ray, while removed and aloof from the physical realm, was nevertheless visible at all hours of the daytime. The king, by contrast, was but a man. His statues could be erected anywhere he liked, but the living flesh could only appear in one place at a time. Expanding the king's role to be more and more associated with the sun, gave the monarch a greater visibility for the people. One could look at the sun at any time, and think of the king's presence on earth, and his effectiveness in protecting the realm of the living from the forces of chaos. But five centuries of royal rule had not altered the fact that the king would inevitably die. In the time of Menkaure, it had become resoundingly apparent that the lineage was not a guaranteed thing. The line could end and the prospect was never more real than in the days of the early 5th dynasty, before the birth of Userkaf's son. What was to happen to the king when he died? While the idea of the king's soul uniting with Rey was not a new one, and had been gestating in the collective mind throughout the 4th dynasty, it is in this period that we see it truly expand to a bona fide mythology. The rise of the deity Osiris is a symptom of this in more ways than one. Osiris was not a new god, but he was newly prominent. Strictly speaking, he emerges most conclusively during the middle of the 5th dynasty, but I feel that he is more appropriately introduced here in order to give perspective on what Userkaf was trying to achieve with his new theologies. Previously, Osiris had been considered just one of the children of Geb and Nut, together with his brother Set, and sisters Isis and Nephthys. We met this family back in the infinite waters of the creation, when Geb and Nut, the earth and sky, came together to establish the elemental forces embodied in Osiris, fertility and death, Isis, motherhood or birth, Set, storms, chaos, and Nephthys, death and motherhood. Prior to Dynasty V, we know little of Osiris as a concept or a cult. His name is in fact a Greek version of the Egyptian Weser, meaning power, in a sort of 
mystical, otherworldly sense. Unlike the Egyptian word sekem, as in ka sekem we, weser is often used in a context of spiritual power or vitality, rather than the strength or violence embodied in sekem. For example, the name userkaf should be pronounced weser ka f, meaning powerful or vital is his ka. Osiris is probably familiar to many of you as the victim of Seth's treachery, when the Chaos God tricked his brother and murdered him. This is actually a tale originating from later periods of Egyptian history, and doesn't seem to have been part of the Osiris myth during the Old Kingdom. That Osiris was linked with Isis, Set, and Nephthys is made clear in the pyramid texts which appear at the end of this dynasty, and we can infer that he was thought to associate primarily with the creation myths during this period. After all, while one can create all existence and life as you see fit, this has always been balanced in religious concepts by the creation of death. Osiris was not a negative god, like our concept of death as the grim reaper, or the power of the devil. For Egyptians, death was a transition to a world connected with our own and capable of influencing it, but slightly removed from the existing reality. Osiris, in his guise as the mummified king, was fundamentally connected not only with the world in which the dead resided, but also the world in which new life was created and brought forth. Osiris, at heart, is connected with rebirth, both literally and metaphorically. It was understood by the Egyptians that decomposing material often seemed to feed new life, and in later eras we will see beds of soil and seed built in the shape of Osiris' body, ready for life to spring anew. Going hand in hand with this notion of death bringing forth life, Osiris was connected heavily with agriculture. His emblems were the crook and flail borne by Egyptian kings, both of which are tools used by shepherds to herd livestock. Accordingly, one of his earliest emblems, or symbols, was a ram, and in the delta city of Mendes, he was connected heavily with the ancient agricultural practices of the early periods. Osiris begins to rise in prominence in the early and mid-5th dynasty, because of the growing discussion of death and rebirth as a fundamental tenet of this divine kingship. Notions of ascension and union with the solar god, present in the sky but eternally aloof, were not wholly adequate to justify the total authority of a single semi-divine monarch on earth. The growth in the cult of Re brought with it an implicit assumption of the god's supremacy on earth, and the king was at risk of being sidelined in favour of an abstract concept. Bringing the solar cult into his own mortuary complex, Userkaf, and perhaps his mother Kentikaus, assimilated the ideology of this supreme being into the veneration of the ruling and living king. To further enhance the prestige and supernatural authority of the monarchy, a growing emphasis was placed on the role of the king in the afterlife. As such, he became ever more connected with Osiris in the funerary realm, to the point that later epochs would rationalise the living king as Horus, son of the deceased Osiris, the king's dead father, and, equally, son of the supreme being Re. At the side of the king stood Hathor, the queen, 
and the royal couple formed the two living incarnations of a half-abstract, half-material pantheon. In this respect, the Fifth Dynasty kings stepped effortlessly between worlds. In the morning they arose like the sun, and in the day they ruled as Horus. By night they descended with Ray into darkness of the underworld, ruled by Osiris, where they traversed dangers to ensure the forces of chaos were held at bay, ready for their rebirth, and the renewal of the land in the next morning. I have borrowed small elements of this discussion from later texts, namely the pyramid texts of the late 5th dynasty. We can't be 100% sure that these ideals were being explained so clearly this early in the dynasty, but we can say that the royal mythology and ideology was developing rapidly in this era. I have used these later descriptions for two reasons. Firstly, to foreshadow what comes later, and start my listeners on the mental path to intuitively understanding these ideas. And secondly, to make clear that when we speak of the pyramid texts, or any myth for that matter, we acknowledge the fact that these ideas were conceived long before they appeared as formal religious texts. Usarkaf straddled this growing shift in ideological philosophy with surprising skill. The 5th dynasty emerged from the brief instability following Menkaure's death on a firm footing, with a well-organized administrative and social structure underlying what was essentially becoming a theocratic monarchy. While we've talked about kingship in terms of divinity before, it is in this period that the notion really begins to synthesize with the practical aspects of ruling power, and Usurkaf's statues replicate the aloof, eternal expressions of the Third Dynasty portraiture, rather than the increasingly individualized aspects of the Fourth Dynasty. But Usurkaf did not reign much longer than his brother, a mere seven years to the former's five. The total length of their reigns was approximately twelve years, and we must assume that shortly before his ascension, Usurkaf was able to father a son who grew healthy and strong, capable of ruling the two lands when his father crossed to Osiris' realm. The new king was named Sahure, and he is the second king of Dynasty V. We will meet him properly next week, for the wealth of information arising out of his funerary complex allows us to discuss this king and his family with some greater detail than the vague images surviving from Shepseskaf and Usarkaf. The fourth dynasty was dead and buried. The monuments of Giza had brought royal construction projects to an unassailable peak of grandeur. Now, it was time for the kings to capitalize on their predecessors' achievements, and construct an ideology that could unite divine lineages and cults in the person of a mortal yet supreme ruler. Mm-hmm.